women really want this expansive life. They want to have more and feel expansive. And it's not just about the business. It's not just about the money. It's not not about that. But it's about this lifestyle, this emotional, this is how I want to live. Are you ready to master your mindset and your business? Join thousands of women each week who use this podcast as a tool to create financial and emotional wealth. And when you're ready to scale to the next level, visit theunstoppablewoman.com slash go. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Unstoppable Woman podcast. I'm Amira Alvarez. I am your host and also the founder and CEO of the Unstoppable Woman, where we believe that you can have an exquisite life, make the money you want, and have everything else concurrently if you raise your capacity for more. So please join me today for this amazing interview with Laura Adams. She is I'm actually going to let you introduce yourself, but she has a great podcast called Money Girl and uh, speaks to personal finance, which is one of the things that I I like love, hate, love, hate, love, hate. So I'm going to bear my soul with you, Laura, and hopefully I'll get some tips as well. So welcome, Laura. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Amira, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here and connecting with you and your audience a little bit about me. I'm a personal finance author and expert. I've been in this space since um, about 2007. I started podcasting kind of before podcasting was a thing. So I've been doing it 16 years now. And that has really led to a lot of opportunities to be an author, um, speaker, connecting with people in a lot of different ways. So I kind of came to personal finance in kind of a roundabout way. Um, I studied science in school, and it wasn't until I got my MBA that I realized that people are really lacking in some basic personal finance skills. And after I finished that that program, I realized that that really was my calling. It wasn't necessarily corporate finance. It was helping ordinary people understand complex financial and business topics. And how how could I fit into that? So it was really podcasting that kind of launched all of the things that I'm doing now. So that's kind of a it, me in a nutshell. I love it. I love it. So let's start with the podcasting because I always find that interesting. And I know there are a lot of people out there thinking like, should I start a podcast? Like, sounds I listen to podcasts. Sounds fun. I have a lot to say. Like, what was the impetus for you to start your podcast? Yeah. So I, after I got my MBA and I really decided that I did want to communicate finance in an approachable way, I started writing first. And then I realized, you know, I'm listening. This was back in like 2006. I'm listening to a lot of podcasts and I'm loving them. This new media, this new format, it was a really kind of just informal way to learn that really resonated with me. I was listening to to all kinds of shows on science and marketing and and money. There weren't that many money shows out there, uh, first of all. So I realized that, well, I love podcasts, but maybe there's a lot of other people that would like it too. So I sort of turned that written content 
into podcasts and I got a lot of great feedback. So that's one thing I would encourage people to look for in their lives. If there are areas where you're getting good feedback, good positive feedback from whatever, friends, family, customers, clients, that's a real signal that maybe you want to go a little deeper in that direction. And so that feedback was kind of what kept me going. And eventually, about a year later, I was invited to join a podcasting network called the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, where we had, I think, one, two shows um, at the time. And then it's really grown since then. But so it began with maybe my personal love of the medium. And I thought, well, how can I give back? What can I do? Yeah, so many good things there that I just want to call out. So the last thing that you said, something that I love to do and how can I give back? This is like people are like, what's my purpose? What should my business be? Should I go in this direction? Should I not go in this direction? And and oftentimes it's when you already have an established business and you're having those thoughts around like, uh, do I pivot? Why does this not feel so great anymore? Why is this such a struggle? I'm like, what feels good to you? What do you love to do? What would you do anyway, if you even if you didn't get paid for it? Now, we want you to get paid, but like, what is that calling in you? And for me, with the podcasting, I love teaching. And for the first year, for the first year of the podcast, it was just me teaching. So people can go back and like binge listen to the podcast if you want, but it was just me teaching for the first year. And I didn't have any guests on it and there weren't interviews but I love talking to people. So I added that in. And it's also great from to build your audience in a, in a way naturally and organically. So I, I got on, on board with that. But fundamentally, it was like, I love teaching. And it was a way to give that second part of what you said to so many people. Because there are a lot of people who want to work with me, but they're too early on in their business or they don't have the experience of investing in themselves and in the, their business. And the podcast is a great way to 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 help many, many people. So I love that. Okay, let's go back to one other thing that you said. You said that a lot of people are lacking personal finance skills. Okay, so what are personal finance skills? That could mean so many different things. And then what are the key things that you think most people are like, they're, this is what they're like, pretending to know or not wanting to look at like kind of going eh, I'll deal with that later yeah so for me the light bulb moment when I was in graduate school was looking at all of my cohorts who were very smart many of them were c-level executives they were you know going up the ladder in their company they were multi had multiple graduate degrees made very smart people but we had one personal finance class in our MBA program and I noticed they were all really struggling. And it was like a lot of the content was brand new to them. Like they had never you know, heard of a lot of these super simple concepts, or at least it was super simple to me because I had always been interested in this topic. And as a young kid was just reading money books and, and really you know, diving into this content just out of a personal interest. I wanted to understand money. I remember when I was literally in middle school begging my mother for a checking account, I wanted to manage my own money as a little kid. Like I just thought this is the coolest thing ever. And it meant meant a lot to me. And I realized other people don't have that interest. They have not been reading personal finance books for decades. They don't really care. 
well, maybe they care, but they don't come at it with a genuine passion and feeling of, of interest. And because of that, now they're in their 20s, their 30s, and they're in debt. They are, you know, not saving. They are doing a lot of thing, or rather, they're missing a lot of financial habits that I've already been doing for decades and have kind of set me up in a in a a really easy, simple way. And now all of a sudden they're kind of in their midlife career freaking out because they don't have the savings or they don't have the direction. And so I realize you can be super smart, you can be super motivated, and you can still fail miserably with your personal finances. One of the things that I see, and this is whether you're in the C-suite or you're an entrepreneur, you're really good at this lane, right? This creative risk-taking, always looking forward, always building, always, you know, imagining what you can create and then executing on it. There's like a, there's this, this power that you have to make manifest these ideas. And you're so enthralled and so in love with that, that it's like um, blinders on a horse in a horse race. It's like all you want to think about Everything else is, as my my man calls it, administrivia. It's like I don't want to 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 to. That's boring to me. I don't want to do that. And then you wake up and you're like, I don't have any of this taken care of, right? So I really I understand that experience that you had because I see it a a lot with my clients. One of the things that you said though that I think is really super interesting, and I want to dive in deeper here, is that. As a kid, you were reading personal finance books, okay? And you wanted a checking account. Like my mother, you know, I love her, right? She's like, you need a checking account. You need to learn how to, you know, balance your checkbook back in the day when we had checkbooks and things like that. But to me, that means that you probably didn't have a lot of money stories or money beliefs, but maybe you did and you were trying to solve for them. Can you tell me a little bit about how you were brought up to think about money? Yeah, as a child. Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't ever remember mom and dad sitting me down like with these super important financial lessons. I think I really absorbed a lot from just watching them as role models. They were very entrepreneurial. I have their parents were entrepreneurial. So I had some great role models in terms of go-getters, kind of creating your future, creating it for yourself. But you know, they were not like teaching me about retirement accounts or taxes. They really, I think, just set me up to believe that, hey, if you want to do it, it's possible. And for me, managing money was sort of maybe meant that I was an adult, meant that I was grown up. Like if I could manage that money, it it was something that made me feel powerful or empowered. So I really latched onto that as a kid and was always looking for, you know, what can I do next? What's my next goal? What's my next thing to sort of become more of an adult? And, you know, for me, that was just learning about money. I thought that was the grown-up thing to do. And unfortunately, it, you know, it, it served me well in, in setting me up for a foundation of financial literacy. Was there any money scarcity in your growing up? Was there any like, oh, no, we're going to run out of money or, oh, no, money is money is bad or like, I mean, ever, I, I think most people desire to have enough money, but they have parents who have 
conditioning around money and and stories that you know money doesn't grow on trees would be the the most common or simplistic one but it can be much more nuanced than that did you grow up with any of those kinds of beliefs around money you know not that i can think of and i know my parents you know looking back kind of knowing knowing now i know they with their business they did go through real ups and downs there were years of of scarcity and worried about money but there were also years of plenty but what I will say is they never communicated either the good or the bad to me. So it was kind of neutral. They were very, if they did fight about money, it was very much behind closed doors and something I didn't know. So I I didn't really feel scarcity or a, a huge amount of abundance. I felt safety and security. We talked about things like college. I knew I was going to go to college. The price tag was never mentioned. It was kind of just assumed that they were going to figure it out, and they did. I'm super grateful for that, not having to to go into debt for education. And I, so I think that there was a bit of a vacuum there, and maybe I was really trying to fill that vacuum with my own knowledge, really trying to self-educate. And I think I created my own money beliefs by just digging in and learning on my own. I love it. Okay, so let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey. So you start this podcast, it takes off, and you write a book, and you're doing your writing, and and then what happens? Like, how how did your business grow? I want to. I, I love pulling back the curtains for people, and you know, I share a lot about my my money journey, right, in growing my business. And you don't know this, so everyone who's listened more than once will probably have heard this already. Sorry, it's a repeat, but Laura doesn't know it, which is, you know, I share my numbers with my audience, you know, what my journey was so that they can see what's possible and not be afraid of the money. So first year in business, I made 30K, which from for my expectations was not nearly enough. Okay. It was something. I was proud of myself, but it was not nearly uh, what I wanted to be making. Third year in business, what I made 90K, I tripled my income fantastic. My goal was 100K. I did not make my goal. Okay. As a goal achiever, setter and achiever, I was like, er, I didn't make my goal. Right. But I was still proud of myself. And then third year in business, I made 138K. So I, I increased it by 50K and felt proud of myself. But that was the point where I was like, I can't work any harder. Right. And it was, crazy hours and not enough time to do all the things. And I still had a smile on my face because I loved what I was doing, but I didn't see the pathway to making more money because I had one tool, which was work harder. And I mean, I had to be a good person, do good work tools as well. But fundamentally, I just throw in my energy at it, which is important, but is not the answer for the long run. And then that next year, I studied success and how to really scale a business and grow. And I learned the laws of success and and did a deep dive on the inner game and the mindset side and the subconscious programming and all of that. And I went from 138K to 700K, so I five times my income in one year, which blew my mind. And again, I didn't meet my goal. My goal was million, so I, I came short. But if I hadn't have had that big goal, I wouldn't have gotten to where I was, sort of, so that it was that aim for the stars, land on the moon kind of concept. And then the, the businesses crossed 
you know, we do multi-millions. So it's it's great. We got there. It's it's fabulous. But at no point have I looked at my personal finance. So just so you know, it drives my mom crazy because she's all about that. Okay. Why did I say that? I, I'm pulling back the curtains on that. And I think it's important to talk about money and make it safe to talk about money. You don't have to share your numbers, but I would love to know what your journey has been. Like what have been the pivotal points for you or the things that you really learn lessons on to get to where you are now? So my entrepreneurial journey has been a long and winding road. It really began as soon as I graduated from from college and got my first job because while I had a day job, I was being I was an entrepreneur on the side. I've always had multiple things going on. So I've always been a you know a a multiple entrepreneur or a day jobber and an entrepreneur always and I think that I, you know, not only enjoy those multiple streams of income, but I enjoy the diversity of work as well. So while I was in my first job right out of school in accounting, I was studying to be a real estate agent on my lunch break, like sneaking out to my car and studying. And, you know, and when that test was passed, then I was in the real estate business and I was, you know, selling real estate, doing real estate investments on the side. Did that for many years. My husband and I bought a floor covering business or got into the floor covering business together. We were in in business for several years, kind of built up a, a local business that was failing. And we bought it for pennies on the dollar, built it up with the goal to sell the business down the road, which is exactly what we did several years later. So then we sort of stayed in the floor covering business, but in in different ways. I was the COO of a a local floor covering company owned by a friend of ours who kind of begged me to come to work for him. Did that for a few years, realized, you know, this is, I do not want to be in the corporate world. And while I was in that job, I was building the podcast on the side. I don't even think anybody at work knew what I was doing. I was writing a book. I was podcasting sort of building this community um, on the side. So when I say I've, I come from a long and winding journey, that's what I mean. It is It has been in different fields, different roles, different businesses. And so when the uh, podcast took off and I was able to get a, a, a book deal, um, that sort of cemented a, a road, a, a path forward as an author. When you're an author, then they want you to go into media and to promote the book. So that led to PR, getting trained in PR. That led me to say, wow, I really enjoy doing PR. I enjoy being on TV, doing broadcast. So that led me on a path to doing spokesperson work for brands and companies, which led to more speaking. So there's just been a lot of diversity in what I've done. And it's been kind of a steady uphill increase year to year in in revenue, in maybe the diversity of the work that I've done. Whereas maybe when I was first speaking, maybe it was only $4,000. Now, you know, it's much more than that, just depending on the the client. So being able to sort of increase the demand for the, the skill set that you have has been something that's been really important to me. And all of the things I've done have kind of built on each other. It's kind of like everything sort of prepared me for what I'm doing now. So it's all built on on itself in terms of skills, experience, and income. 
I love it. I love it. I love it. There's so many good bits on this. So one, like I talk about following the breadcrumbs of desire, right? Like that journey, you're like, okay, I'm just going to do this. And oh, this looks good. And this looks good. And this looks good. And maybe you like, even with the floor covering company that you bought pennies on a dollar with the idea to sell it, that was like, there was something that led you there and led you there and led you there. And you just kept following it. And it sounds like you had a really good attitude as you were going through these different parts of your your journey. Is that correct? Absolutely. And when the floor covering business became like, oh, this sort of a, I'm kind of dreading this. This is maybe not where we want to be 10 years from now. A big thing for me is you don't wallow in that misery. You say, this is a signpost that we're meant to do the next thing. So let's list the business. Let's go on. Let's take that next move. We don't know what the next step is going to be, but we know we don't want to be where we are right now in 10 years. So if you can honestly say, I don't want my boss's job or I don't want this job or this business in five or 10 years from now, that's not a failure. That's a cue to say, let's make a move for what that next step is going to be. A hundred percent. Like it can be great for a season and that doesn't mean that it's great for a lifetime, right? And, And that doesn't make that season wrong. It's just a new, it's a new season. So, okay. So then you did this book deal. I wanted to, I want to understand the book deal part of it. So you got this great podcast and you get all these listenerships and who came to you? How did they approach you? Why did they say, Laura, please write a book? The Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network that I was a part of got noticed by Macmillan Publishing. They eventually bought that network. But this was in early days when they were just kind of thinking, wow, podcasting. So this was back in 2000. um, So this was 2007, 2008. They were saying, this could be a good link to publishing. It was a very much a pilot program, but it got their attention. And they thought, okay, if we're building this Money Girl brand in this podcast network, how can we capitalize on that brand? And so they wanted me to write a Money Girl branded personal finance book. And Amira, they basically let me just go with it. I didn't have to submit a like proposal or anything. It was like, write what you want to write. It was amazing. It was really just now, a, a cherry deal. Did you... Uh, have in your mind that you wanted to be an author? Yeah, I love that. I so from a man, from a manifestation perspective, okay, just calling this out for everyone listening, like you have the intention, you have the desire, right? And and you don't know what direction it's going to go in, but you keep or where it's going to come from, I should say, but you keep moving forward, and it comes in this this way that was unexpected. You didn't have to pitch yourself. It came to you. I, I freaking love that. Anything you want to add on on that manifestation that you think would be helpful for people? You're spot on because if you had asked me maybe five or 10 years earlier, what's on your bucket list, Laura? I would have said, I'd love to be an author. Did I know even the topic that I would write about? No. The subject? No. I just knew I think it would be really cool to be an author because I knew what that meant in terms of being an expert, maybe speaking on that topic. Teaching, as you mentioned, is always it's been a love of mine. So that was definitely in the back of my mind. And so the way it came about was super surprising to me. I never would have expected it to unfold the way 
that it did. Um, but it was definitely a, a real turning point in my career. I love that. So good. So good. Okay. And then the PR training, like, okay, so you're doing all this PR. Was that challenging for you uh, in the beginning? How did you, so I have, a, right now, I actually have a, a, a number of clients who are asking me questions about like, okay, when I'm doing my outreach or when I'm like at networking events or like I have to like basically talk to people, how do I do that without being so uncomfortable in myself, right? And I think that there's a way in which the PR training might translate to helping people who are like, I'm fine talking to my girlfriend, fine talking to my kids or my husband or, you know, even you, but I get nervous when I have to put myself out there with my stuff, right? So what did you learn in that? Yeah, and it, it is very uncomfortable because at first when I was on literally on TV on, you know, NBC, gl- flown up to New York, go in a, in a big TV studio and you're the you're you're featured on the segment and there's this imposter syndrome. You're thinking, I'm not the real expert here. There are a million other people who have written personal finance books, but you're given this platform, you're given this opportunity. And I think it does come down to realizing I'm bringing a lot of value here and the people that are hearing me are going to resonate with me in a way that they're not resonating with other gurus out there. So it it does come down to really owning it and saying, okay, you know, maybe I'm not the world's foremost authority in personal finance, but I am an authority in what I bring to this space and, and my viewpoint the way I see it. So that does take a lot of getting used to. And of course, getting formal training in PR was really valuable for me. And I think, you know, understanding that everybody's everybody's nervous, everybody, you know, goes through the scaries. And it is really about talking to one person. So looking into the camera lens and thinking, I'm not talking to thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe more people. I'm just talking to one person. So that's true whether you're looking in the camera for a live TV appearance or you're on the stage at a speaking event. If you can just talk to one person, that's really going to make all the difference. It's huge. It's huge. I've used that technique where you like find someone, the one that's nodding their heads, right? (laughs) Who's actually giving, because some people are really super enthralled with what you're saying, but they have a, 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 like, they're just, quiet in their body. They're, they don't give you any sign or signal that they're engaged or are listening. And it's challenging, right? So I look at the person who's who's like giving me some feedback, but I love that tip. I want to go back to one, one other thing that you said, which I think is super important because it's about value. And this is a, I talk a lot about self-worth on, on this podcast because we only receive that which we feel worthy of receiving. Otherwise, we're going to block it from our lives. We're going to say, that's not me. So when you're like increasing your the fees to work with you or the, your the, what, what you're offering in this world, if you don't feel worthy of receiving that, sales is going to be challenging, okay? Making manifest what you want is going to be challenging. So you have to up your worthiness level. And the thing that you said there was so important. You said, I question my value. But when I said, I bring this unique value, I don't have to compare myself to anyone else, but my unique value, I can see my unique value here. 
And that lens, that perspective on it allowed you to really own it at that level. And then you did it anyways, whether you felt ready for it or not, whether you felt like imposter syndrome or not, you didn't stop yourself. You didn't sabotage and get in your own way. You did it anyway. And and we become worthy. We feel worthy when we actually do the thing. It's like chicken and an egg a little bit. Like sometimes you just have to to do it to feel, ah, yeah, I am an expert. Like I just did the interview on NBC, right? Oh, yeah, I am the expert. So I think that's really interesting. Yes, I totally agree. And then that gives you the confidence to do it again and up your game, do a little better. You know, I look at some of the early interviews I did and I kind of cringe like, oh, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have my message down pat. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't focused in my my key messaging, which is something I learned later. But I, you do, you get, you get a little bit more confident every time you stick your neck out, you do something that scares you, you're nervous, but you work your way through it. And then you go, wow, I just did a live interview on TV. It's not that hard. But, you know, or I did a live uh, keynote at a, at a big event. Like I survived. And you know what? The audience was like really happy and I heard great feedback. And so th- though each time you're challenging yourself, you do, you get a little bit more confident and that as you said, increases your self, self-worth, self which increases your value externally. Was there a period of, like, was there a unique experience where you felt like you deserved the success that you're, you've created, or did it just come over time? It just came over time. Yeah, they're really, I mean, I will say the book deal was a really great point for me because it was something that was such a such a dream come true and something I felt like I had put myself in the perfect time and place to make it happen. So that was kind of a big break that I'll I'll always be grateful for. But even that, you know, came after working hard on podcasting for a couple of years, which wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone to graduate school, et cetera. So there was a lot of work that led up to that. Yeah, I love it. It's not an overnight success, right? It's a it's a lifetime of, of, of building up to it. So given that you're at this level of notoriety, success in your career, are there places where you still feel self-doubt? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, I think maybe in in business, I have always been a solopreneur. I've always been somebody who's happier to have a delightfully small business than something huge. And so maybe there's a part of me that thinks, wow, I should have a lot of employees and I should have scaled and grown. And so maybe there's a little bit of self uh, of self doubt there. But then I also step back and think, you know what? I have a very smooth running, flexible business and schedule that really suits my lifestyle. So yes, maybe I what I don't have to scale I do have to give me a sense of peace and tranquility and flexibility. So there's always a trade-off, right, in everything we do. There's no one right or wrong, but pros and cons for, you know, every direction that you go in. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand your own personal rhythms, what lights you up, how you like to relate to people, like what you're really good at, and build your business around that and the problem that you solve 
right? For for people, right? There's a there's there's like a Venn diagram. There's like a a crossover there. So I love that you've you own that. So let's talk about the being a woman in personal finance. This is the Unstoppable Woman podcast. I love men. This is not an anti-male podcast at all. But I do love to pull out what makes it different or unique from your perspective being a woman in the personal finance world. And I imagine, I mean, we could get this to specify, it, it, it's unique for every single human being. But if you could kind of extrapol- extrapolate what you think is different about being a woman in this industry. Yeah. The audience that I have has sort of slightly gone more in the direction of female. It's about 60% female right now. And it's been a little bit more than that at times. And I do think it's because women want to hear from women when it comes to money. And I think the idea of going to a male financial advisor or educator, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And But I think a lot of women want to hear from a woman's perspective. They want to understand what are the unique challenges that women have that maybe a male advisor or educator just couldn't understand or speak to. So there are certainly a lot of things that women are facing, like we live longer than men, right? Maybe we're out of the workforce for raising families for a time. You know, there's just a lot of different things that we're going to face that end up hurting us financially. Now, there are also some good things, too. Women tend to be better investors over the long term. We don't tend to buy and sell and get really um, impulsive when it comes to financial decisions in the way that some men can. I don't want to stereotype, but it is shown that when you're in and out of the market, you tend to do worse over the long term. So women have some advantages. They also have some disadvantages. And it's just important to understand what those are, be aware of them. And it doesn't mean that women are, are going to end up you know, better or worse in the long run. What it means is that women have a little bit more to think about. We have to plan a little bit, um, I think, earlier and a little bit differently. We have to plan for a longer life, a longer retirement, maybe being uh, a widow, thinking about what that means for estate planning, what that means for you know, maybe the the latter years of our lives being alone, needing care, needing needing help, medical help, et cetera. So there's just a, a little bit more of those components to think about. And, you know, the show that I do, Money Girl, is, is not specifically geared toward women. We do have some female-centric shows, which is really important to me. But as you mentioned, you know, money is money. And what are good principles of investing, saving, preparing for the future, those foundations apply no matter who you are. But I do think it is important also just to call out those challenges that women will face when it comes to money. I love that. I love that. So let's now shift that. Those were some really good tips. My audience, I'm sure, is like taking notes. Oh, 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 I need to pay attention to that. Do you think that there are unique belief systems or psychology that women bring to the area of personal finance that we need to sort of highlight for ourselves? In a lot of cases, women do have a little bit more of a fear uh, about finances. They have, it's very common to have a fear of ending up as a bag lady, right? Like, 
uh, you know, what's the worst case scenario? Well, I'm going to run out of money in retirement and I'm going to end up living on the street out of my suitcase, right? Like, can I just interrupt you for a second? I have to share a personal story of that. that. So years ago, I was married. I lived in this beautiful house overlooking the hills and in the hills overlooking the ocean in Berkeley, California. It was gorgeous. But my husband at the time didn't want to keep doing the job he was doing, working in the industry he was doing. And so we were like, oh, well, between the two of us, we need two incomes for this beautiful lifestyle that we're living. Let's sell the house. Let's move someplace else to that has a a, a lower cost of living than the Bay Area. And let's let's just like figure it out. So we ended up, long story short, we ended up selling everything, selling the cars, selling the house, Craigslisting our house. Within a month, I closed my business and we went traveling across the country in a sprinter van with solar panels on the the roof, you know, trying to find the next place that we wanted to live. It was like this grand adventure with our 80 pound dog. Okay. Now, if you're just listening to the audio, you're you're looking at someone who's got earrings on, her hair's done, she's wearing a nice dress, she's got her nails done. This was me a different like a different this was like, okay, adventure girl, right? Living in a, this little tiny van for 7 months. Anyways, the long story short of this is I told my mom what we were doing and I was super excited and she thought she like burst into tears in like about 30 seconds, 2 minutes maybe. And she had this whole vision of us living under a bridge in a van, totally homeless, having lost everything. And like, that was her big fear. And I was like, mom, mom, whoa, 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 whoa. who did you raise? Right? Like in what universe would I ever be living under a bridge, like without any money? Like you just didn't raise, like you raised the girl who could like balance her checkbook, right? Like to your point about personal finance. Anyways, I think that's really funny. But that, that, so that's not just my mom. That is like, there's a zeitgeist at there, a mental frame. I'm going to be living in poverty. Okay, got it. That's it, you know, and many women do come to money with that. So they're looking at money from a fear base, not necessarily from a, what can I do with money? How can I make it work for me sort of mentality? So that that's something that's really important to recognize. If you've got that scarcity mindset, you might even be afraid to invest. I know a lot of women that just want to put money in the bank, even if it's earning very little interest, because it's a safety factor. At least I know I'll never lose it. Long story short, you're not going to retire comfortably if you don't invest, you don't have the, some way to outpace inflation to really make your money grow. So it is getting people to take a little bit of risk doesn't mean being risky, but it is taking a little bit of risk in order to reach your goals. And it all comes down to the goal. What is that lifestyle that you want to lead in the future and kind of having a plan to work back to that? That's really what finance is all about. So encouraging folks to think about what is it? What is the lifestyle? You know, because that's a really hard question for many people to to think about. And if you don't have a vision of the future, it's really hard to make wise moves today. So that's really where it starts. When do you want to retire? How does that look? How long do you want to work? You know, what type of work do you want to do? Where do you want to live? What kind of home do you want? All of that, if you can formulate that in your in your brain and have a vision in your mind, it makes 
creating savings, creating investments a lot easier because you know what you're working toward. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So one of the things that I know in coaching women, you know, the first thing that I ask is, okay, so tell me what you want. Like, what's your big desire? What are we going for? And oftentimes what I get back is a very practical goal. Like, okay, we're doing this in the business. We're going to X million. We're we're growing the team. Like th- what? there's some very practical, responsible, drawing within the lines response. And then I'm like, well, tell me what you really want, right? Like, and that's where I think that they're, they're when we really own that, like women really want this expansive life, like this, they want to have more and feel expansive. And it's not just about the business. It's not just about the money. It's not not about that. But it's about this lifestyle, this emotional, this is how I want to live. And it often goes back to things from childhood where they they wanted things that they couldn't have or they want to recreate something. Like I know for me in childhood, like my parents were all about like the academics and the books and we got books, travel and restaurants. Those were our, our things. But clothes? No, you couldn't have pretty clothes. Like you got a couple outfits for school. And I make this, this my parents listening to this would be like, that's absurd. That's not what happened. But as a little girl, that was like, I, I, I didn't have the pretty clothes. That's what was in my mind. So like that was a big part of what called me forward. And that desire moves into different things. And it was really hard for me to claim that in the beginning because it felt frivolous. It was like, because of those beliefs that I grew up with, right? So I imagine that when you're asking people these questions, that it's oftentimes very hard for them to claim what they truly desire, you know? So very interesting. Okay. Speaking of desire and claiming, do you have a practice for receiving more in your life? Yeah. What is that? Yeah. So for me, it really is a morning ritual of gratitude. And I try to think about three things that I'm grateful for that are brand new. What have I not been grateful for before? So trying to come up with new and different things, really digging deep to find it is a practice that I think really opens me up to what's possible today, you know, and and sort of sets a mindset of this is going to be a good day. I have already have a lot to be grateful for. And so there's probably going to be a lot more to come. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, we could talk for a long time further, but I'm going to wrap this up before I ask my final questions. And I have a few more. Where can people find you? Yeah, they can go to the Money Girl podcast available on all podcast apps. My site is Laura D. Adams, so L-A-U-R-A-D-Adams.com. And I have some books. I know you've got a lot of entrepreneurs in your community. Money Smart Solopreneur is my latest book. So kind of takes you from A to Z. If you're thinking about starting a business or growing a business, we talk a lot about retirement, kind of creating your own benefits package in the book and productivity tips, taxes, all kinds of stuff. So a really practical guide to managing a business. Um, So there are a lot of different ways you can connect with me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Oh, you're so welcome. And we'll put all those links in the show notes so people can find you. Okay, so my final questions are, 
how do you continue personally to learn to stay on top of your game, whether it's in the personal finance world or in the personal growth world, like, or, or, or any world, really, any aspect of life? How do you continue to stay in growth? Yeah, Amira, I am still a podcast addict. I listen to all types of shows, whether it's marketing, business, personal growth, those inputs into my brain while I'm walking, you know, just chilling out, those are are going to help me create. So the more input that I have that's high quality input, the more high quality output I have in my life. That's just a trend that I've noticed. So I continue to bring in high quality content from podcasts, also books. I'm an avid reader and also audio book listener. Um, so I would encourage folks, I mean, podcasts are so amazing because they're free, they're easy, they're short. If you're interested in any topic, there's going to be a podcast about it. So it's a really great way to continually learn, kind of fitting it in the spaces of your life where you don't think you have time, but you really do. So that's the first place I would encourage folks because it's it inspires me, I mean, literally daily um, to continue learning and growing. I love that. I love that. So uh, why don't we go a little deeper on both of those? What's one podcast you're listening to now? And what is the Audible book you're listening to? So the Audible book I'm listening to right now is Killers of the Flower Moon. The author is David Grann, G-R-A-N-N, Grann, great writer, fantastic. So that's been really great to to dig into. And, and the podcast, there's so many. Oh my gosh. One that I'm enjoying right now is a show about retirement called the IR, the retirement and IRA show. So it's really geared toward people who are getting a little closer to retirement, but very nitty gritty questions. So I'm I'm constantly learning about new things happening in personal finance and retirement. I'll never stop learning because things are always changing. So that's really important to me to stay on top of it. Okay, how would you define an unstoppable woman? To me, it comes down to persistence. If you are persistent in what you want to do, you are unstoppable. There is nothing that can keep you from achieving if you're persistent enough to want it. Yeah. Oh, to want it, right? It has to be something you want. This is, I'm like, I'm like, hello, desire, desire, desire. Okay. Give us an example of where you were like, you just had to, to re- like, dive in, lean into persistence in your career, in your journey? You know, I can think back to just starting writing and really trying to get better. You're not born a good writer. You have to really practice at it. And so I would say I wrote a lot of bad stuff in the beginning. Didn't mean to write bad stuff, but I just wasn't a good writer. So I was super persistent about writing and getting feedback on that writing. So working with people who would edit for me, that allowed me to be better. And you can't get better without feedback. So being open to that feedback was super important for me. That allowed me to grow, to see what I was doing right, but also what I was doing wrong. And that's paid off big time for me. I love that. I think that's a real key is like being open to that feedback. And it's really hard for people to look at their own stuff But if you can, you'll just grow so, so, so much. So I love that. Okay, my final question for you. 
What do you love most about yourself? I would say I I do love my ability to focus in on what's most important to me to kind of be laser focused on what I think is going to move the needle for me. So blocking out everything that's a distraction and focusing in on what is it that I need to achieve today. Sometimes I can be almost too laser focused, but it is, I think, a, a bit of a superpower if you can put down the phone, turn off the distra- distractions, and just give yourself that time that you need. It's very hard to achieve things if you're distracted and if you're not setting aside blocks of time to achieve it. So I've worked really hard to be able to do that, and I love that I'm I'm able to have very productive, focused periods of my day that I'm just not going to sacrifice. I love that so much. It's one of the things that I teach as well, block block scheduling, right? And just for me, it's the it's not just for the work. It's on the personal growth side. Like my mornings, I, I have a solid one to two hours to myself. Sometimes it's working out, but sometimes it's just sitting, meditating, journaling, doing my having my downloads, focusing on something in the business that I want to like have quiet time for. So I'm really I'm really uh, 100% behind that as like this this non-distracted focus time. You mentioned when you were saying that sometimes, to, I, I don't remember your exact words, but sometimes to extreme or maybe it wasn't so good. What's the shadow side for you on that? If you can, maybe not being flexible enough, you know, with friends or family and, and it's like, you know, if you've got that time, I, I'm pretty strict about this is what I'm going to do. So I I have to work hard to say, you know what? Okay, maybe I'm going to go to lunch today or I'm going to get out and do something that I didn't plan, be a little bit more spontaneous. So maybe not being spontaneous enough is maybe the the downside of that. But I think there's always a balance there that you've got to strike. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So Laura, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I just want to to share with you how grateful I am that you you came, you're on the podcast, that you shared so many points about what has worked for you to grow your business, to grow your life, to really follow those breadcrumbs of desire and to be of service in this world in the way that you have. And you you just pointed out key point after key point after key point. And there's nothing like a personal story to help others really see how success works. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. Thank you. 